We'll talk Eddie and Ketia after reports have emerged Arsenal could be willing to sell him in order to upgrade on the England international. We'll do the Zinchenko debate ahead of tough trips to Villa and Liverpool in the coming weeks. City drop points. Angeball works at the Etihad. Are Liverpool as good as people say they are and more? We'll also talk Inter, Joao Felix and take some of your thoughts from the live chat. You're listening to The Debrief on the Chronicles of Aguna podcast. Hey everybody, how's it going? Hope you're all good. Hope you're all well. Welcome back to another episode of The Debrief here on the Chronicles of Aguna podcast. The show in which, of course, we talk Arsenal, but we also take a bit of a wander outside of the Arsenal circle and we'll uh, round up what happened in the Premier League this weekend, as well as uh, bringing you some big stories from both Spain and Italy. Lots and lots to get into, as there always is on the debrief. And I can't wait uh, to get some of you guys' thoughts as well uh, in the live chat on all the subjects that we're going to be discussing. Uh, we're going to start off by talking Arsenal, of course, and then We'll dive into our PL roundup. Then we'll take a trip over uh, to Catalonia, where Barcelona took on Atletico de Madrid. And we'll also do a bit on Inter, who came up with what I would say was a statement victory in Naples against the current champions over in Serie A last night. Let's um, let's start off, though, with the Arsenal chat. We're going to start off by talking about a story that's doing the rounds today with regards to a certain Eddie Enketia. <laughs> According to reports, Arsenal are considering selling Eddie Nketiah in order to raise funds so that they can go out and upgrade on the England striker. Now, this doesn't come, this story, as a major surprise to me. I've said for a long, long time that a big part of the reason that Arsenal were willing to give Eddie Nketiah the contract that they did was so that they would be able to get themselves into a position whereby he could be sold for a hefty amount of money, for a good amount of money and enough for them to kind of, you know, be able to really push the boat out on another top striker. I think we've got a top forward player in Gabriel Jesus. We talked a little bit on the um, review show yesterday, uh, of course, from the Wolves game about what it is that Gabriel Jesus brings to the party, why I think he's so important. But we also kind of had a bit of a discussion, uh, myself and those of you that were in the live chat, and we kind of all came to the conclusion, didn't we, that we could do with maybe a slightly different option. Um, and an upgrade, essentially, on Eddie Nketiah. So, you know, that's not to write the kid off. I think when he's come in, he's done well. And I think that, you know, for a long time, he served a, a real purpose at Arsenal Football Club. And whatever he goes on to do in his career, whether that be stay at Arsenal or go elsewhere, I'll always wish him the best because I think his attitude is tip-top. I think he's humble. I think he's got everything um, that you need from a kind of personality standpoint to, uh, to succeed, I think he's got a lot of ability as well. But is he that elite level of forward? I don't think he is. And so I think at some point, this will probably become the reality. Arsenal will probably uh, look to raise funds for him. And I say that we'll get a hefty amount of money. And I say that it'll be a significant amount to put towards a new striker because, you know, he's English. Um, he's got a long-term contract with Arsenal, still around about four years to go on that contract, proving that he can score goals at this level. Um, and although a lot of people kind of raised their eyebrows when he signed on the dotted line and signed that five-year contract extension, having run his previous deal down, I think for me, it was always about looking at how we can use that to our benefit in the future, rather than it meaning 
Eddie and Ketia's in Arsenal's plans for the next five years. You know, it could have been Eddie and Ketia's in our plans for the next year, for the next two years. But if we have him on this five-year contract, well, then happy days because we'd be able to raise funds from him and that will help and aid us in the building and the further development of our squad. I've always said to you guys that, yes, the spending has been quite big in recent years. And, you know, we've been pleasantly surprised by the way the Cronkies have backed Mikel Arteta and the project that he and Edu are currently overseeing. But there was always going to come a point and there will always come a point where we're going to have to raise money ourselves. And I think KSE looked at the state of the club, you know, when Mikel Arteta came in, when Edu came in and just accepted that everything was broken, you know, fundamentally broken. And the fact that we'd signed so many poor players for big amounts of money on big contracts for a number of years prior to that had put us in this position where we had a squad of dead rubber, but, you know, we were never going to really raise any money from that dead rubber. And um, and so, yeah, you, you can scrap them, but it isn't going to bring you the financial reward you need. So what Arsenal did was take a decision to you know, push the boat out in terms of the spend to make sure that they got in players that they felt could take the team forward. But as I say, that was always going to level out at some point. There was always going to come this point where we'd need to start being smart. You know, you look at, I, I don't want to sell him, but you look at Emil Smith-Rowe and you think about, you know, if what he could be worth if he gets himself fit again. And, you know, you look at these players and you think, yeah, they could be useful, but there will come a point where we'll need to move some of them on. And if we can bring in decent money for them, well, then happy, happy day. So Eddie Nketiah, do I think he's going in January? No, um, despite what this report says. I think come the summer, though, if Arsenal are going to go out and bring in another big striker, because I don't expect or envisage that happening in January, then there may no longer be a place for Eddie Nketiah or a place that he is still satisfied with. And he may choose to move on. Um, he may want to move on. The club may decide to move him on if a good offer comes across the table. So I do think Eddie's days are numbered at Arsenal. But do I think that he's going to be leaving in January? No, I don't. I think that's too close. I don't think that Mikel Arteta will be able to go and get the man he would want in the long term to replace Eddie in this upcoming window. So I think he stays. And I think this is one for the summer. But just wanted to get you guys' thoughts on this as well. Let's um, dive over into the live comments and and see what you guys are saying. Um, lots of hellos. Uh, hello to all of you guys as well. Hope you're all good. I uh, hope you're all well. Thank you for joining me. Um, Wandering Minstrel uh, says, um, Enketi is loyal to us and that counts for a lot. It does. It, it does. You know, you want him to be treated fairly. You want him to be treated right, of course. Uh, Delisio says, I think that's the same thinking behind giving Reese a new deal as well, Harry. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. Delisio also goes on to say uh, that 40 million would be a good price for Eddie and Ketia. I would probably accept that as well. I would try and push for a little bit more just because he's a striker. And we always say it, goals are the most valuable commodity in football. So if you can push that little bit further, and, uh, and you know, squeeze a little bit more out of a Premier League club. We know that the vast majority of Premier League clubs can afford to spend 50 million on a striker these days. That's where football is. Um, so, yeah, you know, we, um, we we should be seeking more. But I think, you know, if we got 40, I, I would take that for sure. Uh, Russ Morgan says no big club is going to want Eddie. Yeah, but what do you define as a big club? Because, you know, I can imagine sides like West Ham, um, you know, looking at him and and we know that they've got a few quid to spend and have spent 
uh, on forward players in the past that maybe haven't always worked out for them. You know, you look at the likes of, you know, there's there's loads. You know, Villa, would Villa be interested? I'd argue that right now they have a better striker all round in Ollie Watkins. But, you know, there will be people out there that would be willing to take a punt on him. I'm I'm certain of that. You know, you look at sides like Forest, you look at sides like, you know, uh, Brighton, you look at sides like Fulham, you look at sides like Crystal Palace. Why wouldn't they be interested in in taking a punt on Eddie? They've spent bigger money on players that had less of a track record. So I don't think it's impossible to get a decent amount of money for him. Uh, Goon Gang says, uh, respect on Eddie's name and progression. I don't want him going to a rival, though. Yeah, like in an ideal world, you don't want him going to a rival. But somebody asked me today about this whole idea of Ramsdale maybe going to Newcastle United and sort of what I'd want for him. So I see Newcastle as a rival, as a club that are looking to take that next step, that are looking to become one of the big powerhouses of English football in the coming years. So I see them as a rival, even if they're not challenging for the same trophies as us this season. Ultimately, they're aspiring to get to that point. So giving them someone like Aaron Ramsdale is not ideal because you'd be aiding them in that mission. However, if an offer comes in that is too good to refuse, then maybe you consider it. But, you know, that's that's kind of the way I look at it when I think about, you know, this, this idea of selling to rival clubs is it's, yeah, you know, in the, the short to medium term, it mo- might be no... Um, issue for me but in the longer term it could be and and that's when you're talking about players that are immensely talented like Aaron Ramsdale um, I, I really do believe that Eddie Nketiah playing week in week out could score 15 league goals I, I really do believe that um, I don't think he brings anywhere near as much in the build-up as Gabriel Jesus does and that's where for me he falls down um, but yeah I, I think there'd be a lot of Premier League interest in Eddie I think it's harsh to say that there wouldn't be. Um, we're going to take a really short pause. Then we're going to talk Alexander Zinchenko. Then we're going to start making our way through our Premier League roundup. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to the debrief on the Chronicles of Aguna podcast. Of course, the weekend saw Arsenal beat Wolverhampton Wanderers by two goals to one. But Wolverhampton Wanderers' goal came as a result of a mistake from Alexander Zinchenko. Actually, the only chances Wolves created on the day came from mistakes uh, from Alexander Zinchenko. He made more than one at the weekend. And whilst we shouldn't beat him over the head for it, because he's been a really good servant to Arsenal since he joined the club at the start of last season, there is a bit of a debate going on around whether or not what Alexander Zinchenko brings to the team from an offensive standpoint is worth the risk that we take defensively. And I've been thinking long and hard about this, talked about it in quite a bit of detail um, on the the sort of review show after the Wolves game in that the nature of the mistakes has to be taken into consideration here. He's normally so assured and comfortable in possession that what we saw from Zinchenko at the weekend, I think, was uncharacteristic, you know, and and not something that I'm going to lose too much sleep over. It's not it's not a a, a problem per se that I don't trust him to keep hold of the ball in those positions. Do you know what I mean? It, I've seen him get torn apart by wingers. I've seen him get pinned by, you know, wingers that were just way too good for him and way too hot for him to handle. But on this occasion, I just think he was having a bit of an off day. But the debate is valid because it's a debate that's been going on for a long, long time. 
I think there are games where you need Zinchenko, where you're going to face a low block. The space is going to be limited. You need that extra body to come in from fullback and someone of his quality on the ball, someone of his guile, someone with his vision, um, you know, he's a very, very handy weapon. And we broke down a lot of teams last season uh, that we were struggling to break down by utilizing Zinchenko in the right way. In the game against Wolves, we saw both sides of Zinchenko, right? We saw him defensively look a little bit suspect in terms of not being responsible enough or as responsible as he normally is in possession. But we also saw him get forward and play an instrumental part in Arsenal's second goal of the game. So I've got mixed feelings on this. But what I will say, and, and feel free to let me know what you think on this, is that going to Villa um, at the weekend, if fit, if available, I would prefer to see Takahiro Tomiyasu playing at left back. I would prefer to see us take that slightly more safe approach, um, that slightly more pragmatic approach. Now, I would apply the same again when we go, of course, uh, to Anfield on the 23rd. I would even argue that I would apply the same thing when we play Brighton. But then then I'm crossing into debatable territory. I think a lot of you would agree with me that going away to Villa, going away to Liverpool, actually putting Tomiyasu in at left back is probably the sensible and responsible thing to do. But then we get to teams like Brighton, where we know they carry a threat. We know they're good enough to hurt us. But are they such a big threat that we essentially abandon, um, you know, that we abandon something that's been a key part of our our game plan, which is to have Zinchenko in that position because he's very specifically um, well-skilled to play in that position. And do we go for that slightly more pragmatic approach? Let me know your thoughts in the comments. I'm interested uh, to hear what you guys think on this because I think it's um, it's a fascinating conversation, uh, this one. Um, Jake Johnson says that Zinni is not Mikel's long-term plan because he signed uh, Timber. Ace Diamond says... I think it's a trade-off. What he provides versus his mistakes means he'll always have a place in this Arsenal team. But I do think his involvement must be managed depending on the opposition. And that was brilliantly put. Um, Goon Gang says, Zinchenko, uh, Ukraine kick uh, over the Karate Kid crane kick. Uh, Mark Jerome said, listening to Arteta's press conference today, he's okay with the odd mistake from Zinchenko because he creates more in midfield. I agree with that. Um, sort of, I listened to the press conference earlier and, and I, that's kind of what I took away from it as well. But I also think that Mikel Arteta will say one thing in the public light and probably say something quite different behind the scenes. I'm sure he would have had a bit of a go at Zinchenko. I'm sure he would have said, look, man, you're one of our experienced players. You're one of our leaders. You're one of the players that the, the rest of the group look to um, for inspiration. You can't be that loose in possession. It just sends the wrong message and, and you've got to maintain a high standard of performance. But he's not going to come out publicly and throw him under a bus, is he? So although I agree with you, I think that I'd always be mindful and wary of the fact that, yeah, Arteta's giving one message in the media, but I, I think he'll be considering uh, whether or not Zinchenko should play in those upcoming games, as I say, at Villa and of course at Liverpool. Jake says, um, I think Zinni has actually defended well this season. He just lost it in bad areas. Uh, what else have we got? Uh, Kashif says that he'd like to see Zinni uh, play in midfield. Um, James says uh, Zinni should play tomorrow then, and then it should be Tommy or Kivior at Villa and Liverpool. We're going to do our Luton preview podcast tomorrow morning. That'll be available 
on Tuesday morning, bright and early for you guys uh, to tune into. And we'll share, you know, a, a predicted lineup, the lineup that I would like to see and all the rest of it. Mikel Arteta has been speaking earlier today and he said that when it comes to Tommy Asu, that he's not fully been assessed yet, that they're going to keep an eye on him because see how he does tomorrow. And then they'll make that decision. I mean, I'm hoping that that's the case. I'm hoping that it is so minor that actually he's still in contention the day before the game. But when it comes to Tommy Asu, you're always worried and concerned, aren't you, by the prospect of him being out for a sustained period of time. So uh, fingers crossed um, that isn't... Um, that isn't the case and he can be involved again nice and quickly. We've got a comment here that says, I don't think Arteta completely trusts Kivio yet. I don't think he completely trusts him at left back yet. I think he trusts him at centre back. He trusts him as a deputy to Gabriel. He trusts him as the next in line, um, you know, should one of Saliba or Gabriel go down with an injury. But I agree with you in the left back sense. I think that it's a very specific role. You know, it's a different role. You're being asked to move from centre-back where you've played all your career into a position where you're not only now defending a wide area of the pitch, but you're also tasked to go infield, get involved in midfield players. Also, it's quite a complex role. It's quite a gear change, I think, um, you know, for uh, for those players. So, yeah, that's, um, that's my take on that. Um, Alistair says, uh, rest Tommy for the Luton game. We shouldn't need him. Save him for the Villa game. That's probably how I would look at it now. I actually said to you guys on the Wolves preview that I'd prefer to see um, Ben White play against Wolves. Uh, sorry, that I preferred to see, yeah, Ben White play against Wolves so that Tommy Asu could be given a breather and actually use Tommy Asu in the game at Luton rather than the Wolves one because I think at Luton it's going to be a lot more physical and I think that Tommy Asu's skill set might have served us better there. But hey, um, it didn't work out like that. And uh, obviously with Tommy Asu picking up that problem, which we don't know the extent of just yet, it's kind of changed things and thrown a bit of a spanner into the works. Right, we're going to take another very brief pause. And when we return, we're going to begin our Premier League roundup. We'll talk City, Liverpool, Newcastle, United, and then we'll cross over to Europe for some of the big games that took place on Sunday night. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Chronicles of a Guna podcast. Welcome back to the program. Hope everybody is good. If you're just joining us on YouTube, uh, if you're just uh, joining us on the live stream, please do uh, leave us a review. It really, really does help. I'd love us to get to 100 um likes same reviews i mean likes on youtube i'd love us to get to 100 likes by the time um we finish the live stream that would be amazing uh so if you wouldn't mind please do drop us a like and if you're not subscribed to the channel what are you waiting for don't forget you can get every episode of the chronicles of aguna podcast on all your favorite podcast providers as well so if you prefer to listen rather than watch um well you should be watching and listening but you get the point then you can download the content there as well. Okay, let's um, start then with our Premier League roundup. And let's begin with Saturday's games. Arsenal beat Wolverhampton Wanderers by two goals to one. Brentford, uh, despite having nine players out, uh, were able to overcome Luton Town, Arsenal's opponents, tomorrow night, of course. Burnley, in the Battle of the Basement Boys, ran out 5 nil winners uh, against Sheffield United, which ultimately saw the axe come down 
on Paul Heckingbottom, who's lost his job. Chris Wilder is said to be the front runner to replace him. So a bit of a throwback that. Nottingham Forest uh, continued their poor runner form with a home defeat to Everton, who are working their way towards clawing back that 10-point deduction. And Newcastle battered Manchester United 1-0. Yes, they battered them 1-0. We'll come on to that in a little bit at St. James's Park in the evening kickoff. If we turn our attention then to Sunday, uh, Bournemouth played out a 2-2 draw with Aston Villa. The Aston Villa thing, right, it it kind of irritates me a little bit. Listen, I've got nothing against Aston Villa or Unai Emery, but I constantly have to listen to people tell me that, you know, Unai Emery's the best manager, you know, one of the best managers in the league, that he's um, way ahead of Mikel Arteta currently and all the rest of it. And I get that history plays a part here, right? And Unai Emery has A, the experience, and B, the silverware to show. But this is a prime example of why it's not fair to compare them because one is working in a far more pressured environment than the other. If Arsenal had gone and drawn 2-2 at Bournemouth, it would be the biggest story. Everybody would be talking about it. It would be the end of the bloody world. But Villa go and draw at Bournemouth and it isn't that big a deal. Why? Because the expectation levels are just worlds apart. This is the kind of job that is perfectly suited to Unai Emery. Okay. And, you know, I'm not looking forward to facing them next weekend. They've got a great record at home. They're a really good and dangerous side. But there is not that demand and that requirement to be as consistent as you need to be at Arsenal. So when people keep saying, oh, look at Villa's results, um, they're brilliant. And then when they, you know, mess one up, um, you know, everybody just kind of sweeps it under the carpet and goes, yeah, but, you know, it's Aston Villa, it's Unai Emery, don't worry about it. That's the kind of thing that highlights why the two jobs are, are so different and why really, you know, because Villa are doing well, it doesn't mean that Emery would have been the best man to stay at Arsenal and, and we should have given him more time and all the rest of it. Um, elsewhere, Chelsea beat Brighton by three goals to two. Fascinating game, that one. Liverpool uh, grabbed a late winner uh, to uh, a late couple of goals, really, to, uh, to beat Fulham at Anfield. West Ham played out a 1-1 draw with Crystal Palace and the Super Sunday uh, game between Manchester City and Tottenham ended 3-3. Uh, we'll talk about some of these games individually in just a mo. Um, remember, get involved in the comments. Let me hear your thoughts throughout the program. I'd love to hear from you guys. Let's uh, dive first then into uh, the game between City and Tottenham Hotspur at, of course, the Etihad. <laughs> So, um, Manchester City, three, Tottenham Hotspur, three. Spurs opened the scoring on six minutes through Hyung Min Son. And then uh, he scored an own goal three minutes later. He was really unlucky uh, with that, to be honest. The, the delivery came into the box. He barely stuck out a leg and it just seemed to come off the top of his thigh uh, and beat the goalkeeper. Um then City went 2-1 up, Phil Foden on 31 minutes before uh, Giovanni Lo Celso equalised on 69. But then City found another one on 81 with Jack Grealish. And I think all of us at that point thought it was a winner and that Manchester City were going to continue um, to, to put points on the board and that Tottenham, who had a real hold and have a real hold over Manchester City in recent times, were not going to have it their way that day. But Dejan Kulusevsky popped up on the 90th minute. So, first of all, I've got a kind of, I don't want to apologise to Spurs because, you know, 
being an Arsenal fan, that's that's quite difficult and tough to do. But what I do want to say is that, you know, I was one of those people in the build-up to this game that said very adamantly that to go to the Etihad and play Angeball was was crazy, was stupid, was was something that was going to lead to a Manchester City mauling. And listen, if you look at the stats, and we'll, we'll do that now, you know, if we roll a bit further down, you look at the stats, you look at Manchester City, right? 17 uh, shots on goal in comparison to Spurs is eight. And you look at some of the chances that Manchester City spurned on the day, then that theory was to a degree proven right. Like, if you play that way, you'll give City loads of chances and then you're relying on them not converting them in order for you to remain in the game. Now, credit to Spurs. They went there and they scored three goals. In fact, they scored four goals. They scored one of Manchester City's for them as well. But I think the key here and why Spurs were able to make a good fight of this and why they were able in the end to come away with a point is what well, the key is in that possession stat. 55%. Manchester City had. Go back to the game where Arsenal beat Manchester City earlier in the season and you'll see that the possession was pretty similar to this. You don't need to have the lion's share of possession against Manchester City, but you need to have enough for them not to be able to suffocate you. And so where I'll give Ange Postacoglu credit this time around is that if he did go there and sit back and soak up with the players that he has, City would have had more possession, probably 70, 72% possession. And the more possession City have, the more chance they have of breaking you down, the more likely they are to wear down your resolve, no matter how strong it is. So I think that's the key. You know, I think at times some of Tottenham's pressing was a bit bold and, you know, had the potential to be very costly. They needed a bit of luck along the way, but they got it. And they were able to come away from the Etihad with a point. So I'm not happy for Spurs. And, uh, you know, there was a part of me yesterday that was conflicted, as I mentioned to you on the last pod, where I was like, well, I'd love them to get absolutely battered at the Etihad. But at the same time, I quite like Manchester City to drop points as well. In the end, this was the perfect result for us. It means that Arsenal keep a bit of a, a cushion between themselves and City with some difficult games coming up for both sides in the coming weeks. And it means that Tottenham don't quite get back to winning ways, um, but manage to, to dent, you know, the uh, the challenge that we're facing from Manchester City, albeit just a little bit. But yeah, you know, Angeball, does it work? Um, can it work? It, it worked to a degree yesterday, but they were relying on fine margins and they were relying on City not being able to finish their dinner, which in Erling Haaland's case is doesn't happen very often. However, it happened yesterday. Now, there was one incident in that game that sparked a lot of debate and a lot of controversy, and it led to a very angry Erling Haaland confronting the referee, Simon Hooper, um, during and after the game. So there was a foul committed on Erling Haaland around about the centre circle, but he managed to pick himself up and continue. The referee initially signalled for an advantage. Haaland played a ball over the top of the Tottenham defence, the high Tottenham defence that was basically sitting on the halfway line. Again, crazy stuff. Jack Grealish was running through on goal and the referee blew his whistle and pulled the play back. Now, I think we can all agree that that was a really stupid decision and a really wrong decision. But, you know, I've listened to a number of people talk about this today. I've spoken to friends about this and everybody seems to be convinced that there's some either hidden agenda or that 
you know, the, the, the referee had things going on in his ear and uh, as a consequence of the way that football is officiated now and that threw him off and all the rest of it. I genuinely don't think that any of that is, is valid here or true. I just think that Simon Hooper's had a bit of a brain fart moment where he's played advantage, maybe thought that the ball wasn't going to reach Jack Grealish, so blown up to pull it back, but then he's pulled it back now and he can't do anything about it. And I just think it was something that happened really fast and that he just got wrong out of instinct. And, you know, we can sit and, and beat him up about it. And and I sort of went on the 90 Min show today and somebody said that I'm a hypocrite because a couple of weeks ago I was calling the referees incompetent. And this time I'm saying, well, he's just had a bit of a brain fart. I don't really know what anyone could do about it. First of all, it wasn't a guaranteed goal. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. The nerds have helped me get smarter about things like planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year, producing a balanced budget, not just for football, and saving on travel because spending less on airfares means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancy dinner too. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast on your favourite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Or was it, even if the ball got to Jack Grealish? It wasn't guaranteed that he was going to go through and score. He still had plenty to do. I'd have fancied at least a couple of the defenders to catch up with him as well, make him cut back on his right foot and all the rest of it. But the point is, like, I think we can all forgive things like that because they happen in the blink of an eye. They happen in a split second. And, you know, as humans, we've all got errors and mistakes in us. When I talk about incompetence, I'm talking about people sitting around the screen in a room with all the angles they need to be able to make the right decision, watching a video and then making what is blatantly a wrong call. That's where where I get angry. That's where I get frustrated. I can kind of live with things like this, aside from the fact that it benefited Arsenal in the end. Um, I can, yeah, I can live um, with this kind of stuff. You know, I, I really, really can. Um, let's see what some of you guys are saying uh, on this one. Um, uh, Connor praising Ange Postacoglu says he made some great adjustments during the game which allowed Spurs uh, to come into it. Dwayne says, Harry Pepin, the players criticise the ref, players surrounding and shouting in the ref's face. And people like Genus say he's happy with how they behaved, but Arteta and Arsenal are immature. Yeah, I, I found that weird. I found, look, I, I don't think Pep went overboard in his interviews or anything like that. And yeah, all right, you know, he said he didn't want to do a Mikel Arteta. That was kind of like sticking the knife in the referee, but only doing it from behind so you could protect your identity and protect yourself and, 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 you know, not your identity, but protect yourself from any consequences that could come down the line. It's like saying I'm pissed off, but I'm not actually going to say it. That's what Pep Guardiola did. He's very clever. He's way more experienced than Mikel Arteta. He's been around the block a few more times, a fair few more times. And, um, and you know, he probably dealt with that in a in a better way. I, I do find it weird, though, the fact that nobody wanted to criticise Haaland's conduct or the conduct of some of the other City players that were aggressively gathered around Simon Hooper, who generally yesterday, I thought, had quite a good game. Um, Connor says that Pep taking off Foden stumped him. Uh, he says that probably cost him the three points. Um Alistair says, uh, I think for Spurs, it's not just the way they are playing. It looks like the players are actually playing for the manager, which I don't think they were in the last couple of seasons. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. 
Um, Jake Johnson says, Harry, you said you were taking a day off of football uh, on Sunday. Did this happen? It was a great day of football. So it kind of half happened. Um, I went to a friend's uh, sort of Christmas gathering. Um, you know, we had the barbecues on. We had um, music on, whatever. Everybody was sort of catching up. And it was it was really nice. And then as the Spurs game started to get juicy, around about, I think it was just before Grealish got that uh, got that goal, I think on 81, we thought, oh, come on, you know, we're all in the same room now. You, you might as well stick it on. So we stuck it on in the background and um, and we were all glued to it between that moment and the finish. Now, I know that's not a long period of time, but, you know, when you're wanting Spurs to equalise, they do. And then you're kind of waiting for them to hold on and see it out. It felt like an absolute age. Uh, I did come home, though, having seen that and having seen some of the scores from earlier in the day and sit and watch uh, all of match of the day, of course, um, which is great when there's a good day of football. Absolutely brilliant, isn't it? Uh, and Russ says, barbecue in the winter. Yep, of course, mate. Do you know what? Shall I show you guys um, a picture? There are. Uh, hold on a minute. Let me find it. My mate has got an incredible um, setup. He really, really has. Hold on a second. Let me stop this. And I'll share with you guys just a picture from my Twitter or X as it's now known. If you haven't seen it, if you're listening, you'll want to come over and have a look at this. Check this out. Look at that. Chicken on the top one, pork on the other. Look at that. Proper food. He's got an indoor setup with the extractor and all the rest of it, um, which is why we're able to do it in any weather, in any condition. And barbecues in the winter, they drop nice, man. They really, really do. Um, anyway, that's enough about barbecued meats. Uh, let's get back to uh, the football. Um, so, yeah, the 1-1 draw, um, obviously a very, very positive result for us. And we'll have a look at the league table once we finish uh, up our uh, roundup of the Premier League games. Not going to discuss all of them, but there are a few that I want to get into. Liverpool 4, Fulham 3 was another one that I thought was uh, was fantastic for the neutral Um you look at the way that this one went and you look at the goals that Liverpool scored, all of which were absolute worldies. I know the the free kick, the first one was given as an own goal to Bert Leno because it came off his back, but you've got to give, I beg your pardon, Trent Alexander-Arnold immense credit for that. And McAllister's goal, goal of the season so far for me. Endo's finish was brilliant. And then Alexander-Arnold pops up in 80, on 88 minutes to win the game after Fulham got their noses in front on 80. It was just an incredible game for the neutral to watch. I hoped, obviously, that Liverpool were going to drop some points. Um, and, and I've kind of listened to people sort of break this down and assess this one today. And, you know, I've heard from some who have said, well, you know, they were a bit lucky yesterday. You know, those goals, they don't normally go in. You know, they were worldies on the day. And, you know, actually, they were a little bit suspect. I would argue that they were suspect because they had key defensive components missing. I would argue that they don't concede the first two goals that they do if Allison's in goal rather than Kelleher. I really, really do believe that. So I think that, you know, the fact that they were a little bit vulnerable is a bit of a red herring. They still do have the second best defensive record in the Premier League. So if I was to sit here today and say that I'm really concerned or, or that Liverpool should be concerned about the state of their defence, I'd be lying. Um, I think this was a one-off. And look, if you can produce worldies like that and they win you the game, who are we to sit and be critical of that? I think it was a big um, result for them in the end. 
uh, particularly with a game against Arsenal coming up, particularly with a midweek fixture. I think it was, as Matthew says in the chat, um, individual player talent that won that one for Liverpool. And when you've got top quality players, that's what can happen. That's that's the difference, isn't it? Um, and, and that's why you pay uh, big money for big players. Uh, another game that I wanted to touch on uh, was, of course, Newcastle's 1-0 battering of Manchester United. The goal came from Anthony Gordon just 10 minutes after the break. And it was another miserable day at the office for Eric Ten Hag's side. They're really, really poor. They're really poor. Um, there's no identity. There's no fight. There's no work rate. There's no effort. There's just so much wrong with that team. And, you know, I've said it for a few weeks now. I think that people have given Eric Ten Hag an easy ride because of the situation at the football club with regards to the ownership and all the rest of it. And I just think to me, you know, yes, that is an issue and it's something that needs to be addressed. But I mean, there's got to be questions asked of what's going on on the field of play. And for that, Eric Ten Hag is responsible. The thing that really mystifies me about this, and I'm going to give Newcastle their props in a minute, so don't worry. Um, but the thing that really mystifies me about all of this is if I scroll down to the teams, right? you look at the possession, Newcastle dominant. You look at the number of shots, Newcastle dominant in that department as well. But if you look at the starting lineup for Manchester United, right, you look at this and, you know, Onana and Eric Ten Hag signing fine, you know, Wan-Bissaka, Maguire, Shaw, Dallow. That's pre-Eric Ten Hag, right? You'd look at that and you go, well, he can't really do much about that. He's got players missing. You look at the midfield. Kobe Mainu, I think, is a really, really good player. But to be relying on him at this stage is a bit much. You look at Scott McTominay, and I, I think, yeah, he gets forward and he gets the old goal from time to time. But as a player, generally, um, I, I don't think he offers anywhere near enough in midfield. Rashford is really poor at the moment. How he's still in the side, I don't know. Garnacho had a great weekend last weekend and, and deserves to be in the team. But then you've got players like Martial, who have just been hanging around Manchester United for a number of years now without having any real impact. So you look at that team and you maybe think, well, actually, you know, I've got a bit of sympathy for Eric Ten Hag because he's been stuck with a load of players that have been there for a long time that throughout the 10 years of multiple managers just haven't performed. And then I look at his subs bench and I think I'm sitting here telling you that, or you know, I'm sitting here telling you that McTominay's not right. Man United fans are sitting there telling us that McTominay's not right for that midfield. You've signed Sofian Amrabat in the summer, yet he's sitting on the bench. We've heard over and over again that Anthony Martial is, is not good enough. You've brought in Rasmus Hoyland and Rasmus Hoyland is sitting on the bench. You've brought in Regulon as a left back and you've put Dallow in at left back instead, who is a right back really, question marks there. And then we've talked about Marcus Rashford, who's been stinking out the place this season. He's been really, really poor, really below the level that we know he can reach. I mean, he got 30 goals last season. And instead of using Anthony, the £80 million plus winger that Eric Ten Hag went all out for, he's sitting on the bench. I, I just, to me, it, it doesn't make an awful lot of sense. And Eric Ten Hag's spoken about the need, apparently, to keep people fresh and all the rest of it. What are you keeping them fresh for if you're not taking the Premier League seriously and the trip to Newcastle seriously? Because you might be going out of the Champions League and... With every passing week where you're dropping points, the likelihood of you making the Champions League for next season is reducing. So to me, it, yeah, it just doesn't make sense. Um, I do want to give Newcastle their flowers because I thought they were brilliant on the night. 
uh, they'll be really disappointed that they've lost Nick Pope, another injury to add to their problems. But you look at this lineup of Trippier, Lascelles, Cher and Libramento across the back, Miley, Gimaraish and Joe Linton in midfield. And then that front trio of Almiron, Isak and Gordon, that's been their team for a number of weeks now. I think I'm right in saying that they've played three games in eight days and big games, taxing games. Yet the energy and the intensity with which they were able to play on Saturday night was, to me, astonishing. Really, really was. And it's a credit to, you know, I know people will, will point at Eddie Howe and, and they'll give him the credit and and the flowers and all the rest of it. But for me, this is a credit to those players. If those Newcastle players can do that without the options, without the strength in depth as a result of the injury crisis that is upon them, then there is no excuse for Man United playing the way that Man United are playing at the moment. Therefore, I've got to look at Eric Ten Hag, but not just him. I've got to look at the players as well. So I think for me, um, you know, Newcastle did brilliantly. It's a big win for them. It should have been way more than just the one, uh, which will be Eddie Howe's only disappointment. But I think having gone to Paris in midweek, having been on the end of that really controversial decision and all the rest of it, what they'll actually be... Um, more than anything, is relieved that they were able to get back to winning ways in a Premier League game and take another step towards kind of moving on from that nonsense over at the Parc de Prince. Um, Yeah. Uh, Alistair says, um, man, you are just rotten from the top to the bottom. Overrated players, crap manager, crap owners, stadiums falling down in a shit training ground. Uh, Mark says the difference between the Newcastle and Manchester United lineups is that all the Newcastle players play for each other. That's it. That's it. Um, a lot of people highlighting specific uh, Newcastle players. I've seen uh, somebody bring up uh, Liveramento. It was Moss. Really like Liveramento. Wanted him at Arsenal uh, two years ago. And uh, Delisi has been very impressed by Alexander Isak, I think has been a really, really good signing as well. So that's uh, my review or thoughts on that game between Newcastle and Manchester United. I'll tell you what we'll do before we wrap up our Premier League roundup. Let's have a quick look at how the table uh, lies because, of course, there is a midweek set of fixtures, uh, which is going to be really, really interesting. Some big games. We'll, we'll bring you up to speed with what they are in just a second. But as it stands, Arsenal sit two points clear at the top of the Premier League, two ahead of Liverpool, who are on 31. Manchester City sit in third on 30. So we have a three-point lead over City at the moment, but just a four-point lead over Villa, who sit in fourth. And, of course, we travel to this weekend. Not, though before we play Luton. Newcastle are in sixth. Man United are in seventh. Brighton are in eighth, despite people saying that they're struggling to balance uh, Premier League and Europa stuff. I actually think that if Brighton were to finish in the top 10 with the Europa League campaign, that would be a really good season for them. Chelsea are down in 10th after their win. Um, it looks a bit brighter than it did before, but they're still down in 10th. Everton are, of course, in the bottom three because of that 10-point deduction, but they're only two points behind Luton in 17th. Now, um, if we have a look at the uh, the fixtures coming up uh, over the next few days, there's some fascinating games to come. Uh, there are three... Uh, there are Three sets of games spread across three nights in the Premier League. Tuesday, tomorrow, Wolves take on Burnley. Arsenal, of course, are at Luton. Then on Wednesday, you've got Brighton versus Brentford, Palace versus Bournemouth, Fulham versus Forest, Sheffield United versus Liverpool. But the two standout games are Villa versus Manchester City at Villa Park and Manchester United versus Chelsea at Old Trafford. Two games to keep your eye on, especially that Villa City one. I'll be watching that because I want to... Uh, get a read on Villa uh, ahead of the weekend. 
Then, of course, on Thursday, uh, more football. Everton take on Newcastle United. Um, and, of course, Tottenham take on West Ham United in what's always quite a fiery London derby. So these games are on Amazon Prime in the UK. Um, it's going to be an excellent midweek and we get a midweek match of the day, which is always great as well. Uh, so really, really uh, looking forward to these. OK, I'm going to take another very, very brief pause. And when I come back, we're going to cross over to the continent. We're going to talk uh, Barcelona, Joao Felix, and then we're going to move over to Italy. to Talk about interstatement victory at Napoli before taking some of your thoughts and questions from the live chat. So start filling the chat box up now. Welcome back to the debrief on the Chronicles of Aguna podcast. OK, uh, let's uh, go over to Spain, where Barcelona defeated Atletico Madrid by a goal to nil. The, the first thing I want to say about this, right, is that I understand that Barcelona are going through renovations at the Camp Nou and that they've had to move as a result of that. Okay, that's fine. That's all well and good. Um, but decision to play in the Olympic Stadium. Look, okay, they probably couldn't do much about it, but it's just taken the soul out of watching Barcelona for me. Like, first of all, watching Barcelona and them not being in the Camp Nou just feels weird and strange and not right. But then you look at the crowds they're getting, right? They're getting modest crowds by their standards. And everybody's just so far away from the pitch. Like it just feels a bit soulless at the moment. Again, it's something that's necessary while they're going through those renovations and while they're making improvements to the Camp Nou. But it just, this game appealed to me a lot less as a spectacle. So I got home yesterday at about eight o'clock and I sat down and I was like, do I do Napoli Inter? You'll all know that I'm a big Serie A fan, which would have swayed me that way in the first place. But then I looked at this one and I thought this could be interesting too. And I haven't watched that much Spanish football of late. Maybe I'll give this one a crack. But watching it for about 10 minutes, it just felt that little bit soulless. What was a, a big story, though, was that Joao Felix, of course, an Atletico Madrid player, officially uh, did, of course, um, come up trumps uh, for not Atletico Madrid, but Barcelona. Uh, funny that he's allowed to play, first of all, uh, because that wouldn't be allowed to happen, of course in uh in this country um but yeah look he scored the goal he, he celebrated it it was a really well taken goal by the way but he celebrated it as if you know he had no regard uh for uh, atletico madrid whatsoever um it was a big celebration and then after the game as well the way he walked on the pitch with the fist bumps and all the rest of it it was as if he did not care he knows that he's not going back to Atletico Madrid. He knows that he's not wanted there. He's already burnt his bridges with the supporters. Um, but for him, it would have been bitterly sweet, actually, because I think he feels that he's been sort of harshly treated by some of the supporters, but also the management at the football club as well. Um, you know, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm pleased for Joao Felix on an individual level because, you know, he came to the Premier League and he, he joined Chelsea and people were like, oh, well, is that a good signing? I don't know. We'll have to see how it goes. Um, you know, and and I thought he started brilliantly, but then he was playing in a side that was just never going to succeed. So it was always very, very difficult for him, I think, to ever really establish himself and, and you know, make that impact. So, yeah, I've got some sympathy for Joao Felix because I think he's super talented and I think he'd have enjoyed that moment yesterday. Well, you could see that he enjoyed that moment. Barcelona beating Atletico Madrid, uh, taking them three points above 
uh, Diego Simeone's side, but they have played a game less. Um, Los Rojiblancos, as they're known, Atletico Madrid. So the La Liga table now looks like this, and it's quite interesting. Real Madrid are top on 38 points. They lead Girona. Girona, what are they doing there? You might you might say. Um, they lead Girona um, just on goal difference. Barcelona are four points adrift, and Atletico Madrid are in fourth on 31 points. You look at some of the other sides, it's great to see Athletic Bilbao um, in that position, you know, pushing towards the Champions League spots. Great to see Real Sociedad doing well. They're a club I like for some reason. Real Betis too. But then you look at like Valencia. This this jumped out at me when I looked at the table today. Valencia have been through some really rubbish times of late, but they are one of the big Spanish clubs. Now, obviously, I've never forgiven them for dumping us out of the Champions League on a couple of occasions, but you want to see as a neutral, I think you want to see the biggest clubs at the right end of the table and being competitive. And I'm not saying Valencia are anywhere near the level they were at before or that they're anywhere near, you know, sustaining a challenge for a European spot or anything like that. But just to see them seemingly away from danger is is a positive thing. Um, so that's that from uh, from, of course, the game uh, over in in Spain. Uh, if I cross over to the Italian Serie A. Here we go. You can always rely on the BBC website. Brilliant. There's so much to, um, it's just so easy to use. There's just so much access to so many different things. I'll take you through uh, what happened yesterday in the game between uh, Napoli and Inter. Inter took the lead at the uh, Stadio Diego Armando Maradona. Uh, I had to think about that for a second. Chalanoglu scoring right on the stroke of half time, which with what was a wonderful strike. If you haven't seen it yet, uh, give it a Google, give it an X search, not the wrong kind of X as in Twitter, just trying to get used to saying that. Uh, it's a really, really good goal. But the second goal for me was the most aesthetically pleasing. There was a pass uh, into the penalty area from Lautaro Martinez and Nicolo Barella made a run from midfield and he took two sublime touches to, to get himself in front of goal and then finished really, really well to double Napoli, uh, Inter's lead and essentially put the game to bed before Marcus Turan made sure of it on 85. This is a big win um, for Inter. They played Juve last week. It was a 1-1 draw. And a lot of the talk was around, you know, the fact that these two teams were quite, were quite level, were probably going to be neck and neck come the end of the season. I'm not going to write Juventus off. You know, a, a lot of uh, Juventus fans have, have written them off. Even the club's ownership are being very kind of tight-lipped about what they might be able to achieve moving forward and all the rest of it. I think that Juve are in the mix, but this was a big statement victory for Inter to go away to the reigning champions, perform as well as they did and win as convincingly as they did is massive. And Simone Inzaghi, for me, is establishing himself as one of the best coaches in European football. A Champions League finalist last year. He's probably going to be a Scudetto winner this year. You know, they are the favourites, of course. They probably do have the strongest squad on paper. Um, and results like this are only going to help. So, yeah, a big result for them. If we take a look at the table and, and what this means, um, here we go. It means that Inter are now two points clear of Juve at the helm. Milan are six points adrift of their city rivals. Stefano Pioli's coming under a little bit of pressure at the moment. Roma got a victory, which took them up into the top four. Uh, Fiorentina are in sixth. Uh, Lazio, who are going well in the Champions League, not going so well in the Serie A, uh, though, at this moment in time. But yeah, that's how it stands. Like, you think about it, there's six points separating 
um, first and third. It feels like the top two are going to cut themselves adrift of everybody else and that it probably will be an inter-Juve title race, um, which will be fascinating because nobody's given Juve a hope, as I've mentioned. Maybe I am, though. We'll have to wait and see. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, thank you all uh, so, so much, of course, uh, for tuning in. Uh, I'll take a couple of questions before I go. My wife's uh, furiously texting me saying, you said you were going to be in the house at 5.30. Dinner's been ready for the last 22 minutes. It's going to get cold and then you're going to moan at me and all the rest of it. And I'm, like, I'm not going to moan. I was doing the debrief. That's how it goes. And uh, that's how it goes. Right. Let's take a few of your questions uh, before um, we say goodbye. So uh, chuck them in there uh, nice and swiftly. We'll take a really short pause. And when I return, we'll do those questions before I say good evening. Uh, Paul now says, uh, looking very festive in that sweater. Harry. Do you know what? I've I've had a few people say that to me today. It's not even a Christmas jumper, but it looks like one. I can get away with it, I think. Um, but yeah, it's it's not actually a Christmas jumper. But yeah, you know, yeah, it's uh, it's it's doing the job at this time of the year, I suppose. Um, I'm just uh, bringing something up on my screen in response to uh, one of the other questions in the chat because I just want to make sure I'm giving you the right uh, information on this. Uh, Russ says, happy wife, happy life, Harry. Yeah, you're not wrong there, mate. You're not wrong at all. Um, the question was, uh, is Kieran Tierney still injured in Spain? I'm just having a look. Uh, he's only made five appearances this season uh, for uh, Real Sociedad, with who he's uh, playing his football currently, of course, on loan from Arsenal. Um, he was on the bench against Sevilla on the 26th of November and he uh, played 49, no, sorry, he played 74 minutes against Osasuna uh, at the weekend at left back. So he is back, he is available, um, but yeah, he missed games against Atletico, Mallorca, Vallecano, Barcelona and Almeria. So he missed the last five prior to that, uh, of course, uh, Sevilla game in which he came on off the bench. Um, what else have we got? Do, 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 do. Uh, Moss says uh, Dortmund Leverkusen that was a good game yep 1-1 I think it was um, Dortmund manager uh, Edin Terzic not happy with a couple of decisions that went against his side in that game uh, Boniface got the goal to tie it uh, Moss says Xavi Alonso is looking a good manager he's looking great he really is he's looking brilliant you know he's destined for a top top job I wouldn't be surprised if he's the next Real Madrid manager um, I know Liverpool fans are quietly hoping that He'll take over from Jurgen Klopp eventually. Maybe he'll go there one day. But for me, um, he's the next Real Madrid manager. I think Carlo Ancelotti will move on and um, and uh, he'll be the one that they go after. Um, <laughs> Paul says, I didn't get to comment on the barbecue. was in the car. Look, dynamite. You inspired me to get the rotisserie attachment uh, for the charcoal. Good lad. Good man. Uh, Salah Hadin says, thoughts on Arteta's overall management of the Arsenal team and need for control in times of chaos. I think we we look better at that. Um, you know, I, I think we, we do look better um, in terms of how we control our emotions, how ruthless we are. Um, you know, I know that Saturday wasn't a great example of the ruthless side, but I just think that we seem to be a lot calmer, a lot more composed and, and look just like a way more experienced outfit, which is going to serve us well. At the business end of the season, I, I really do. Uh, Alistair says, uh, what do you think of the uh, of Paulinha from Fulham links? 
sorry, what do you think of the Paulinha from Fulham links? I think he would be a very smart signing like Trossard was. Um, I like Paulinha, but the amount of money I think it's going to take to get him out of Fulham in January, given what we know Bayern were going to pay for him in the summer, I think is going to make it one that we just have to pass up and uh, and, and one that we will probably not be able to do. That's just my, my view on that. Uh, Jake Johnson says, did we discuss the Liverpool Cup fixture? We didn't. We didn't. That completely slipped my mind. Um, I mean, it's not the draw you want, is it? It's home. It's at home and it'll be a nice occasion. And, you know, it's good to have an FA Cup game that we'll all be bang up for, I'm sure. But, yeah, it's not what you want. It's not what Mikel Arteta would have wanted. And it's certainly not what Jurgen Klopp would have wanted a trip down to Arsenal in the FA Cup third round. But, hey, the FA Cup is magic. You never know what can happen. Could be a fascinating game. Uh, right. I'm going to leave it there. Um, thank you all so, so much for joining me. Uh, better run before the wife uh, comes after me with a wooden spoon. Yeah. I'm not saying she does that. I'm just kidding. Um, it's, it's just a very, uh, it's a very traditional old Greek lady thing. My, I'm not saying my wife's an old Greek lady. Jesus, I'm digging myself all here. But my gran used to chase me around with a wooden spoon when I was naughty. Um, and we kind of always joke about that. So yeah, probably needed to provide a bit of context there. Uh, thank you all so, 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 so much for tuning in to this episode of The Debrief. Um, if you enjoyed it, please let me know in the comments below. Leave a like on the video. Subscribe to the channel if you're new. If you're listening on audio, subscribe and leave us a review as well. Um, but your feedback on The Debrief is is really, really important to me because it is a new content strand that we started a few weeks ago. I think they've gone well so far. I think people are enjoying them, but I always like to hear from you guys if you are, because if you're not, then we, we're not going to do them, right? We, we, we want to do things that you guys enjoy and that you want to listen to, um, because without you, this channel is nothing. So uh, please do let me know in the comments if you enjoyed it. And I'll catch you all soon. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>